0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport, and Chris Bickerton. Last week, we held off talking about Trump and Comey because we thought we would let the story just mature a bit, and it has matured over the last week and last night. The latest twist is that there's a memo from James Comey which seems to suggest that the president asked him to back off the Flynn investigation. And that's provoked the latest round of, depending on your perspective, hysterical or measured and well-reasoned commentary suggesting that this presidency is in deep, deep trouble. Some of you may have seen things and maybe I've missed them, but I've been looking for what you might call impartial commentary on this. That is not people who just have got nothing to say but people whose views are not predictable by where they stood beforehand i haven't found a trump supporter who now says this presidency is done but they may be out there i mean i know some republican senators are starting to get twitchy but that's different i've not found an anti-trump or never Trumper saying get over it guys there's nothing to see here everyone seems to more or less take the position you expect them to take so it's quite hard to know what to think I'm finding. And so we're going to talk about that. We've been frantically looking how to pronounce his name. So we think it's Ross Douthat, Douthat, the New York Times, thanks, Aaron. the New York Times columnist. He's their sort of in-house Republican. But he was pretty sceptical about Trump. And this morning, he's saying, forget impeachment. It's now about incapacity and Pence and others, you need to think about removing him. But that's not someone who thought he was capable and now thinks he's incapable. So before we get into the detail of who said what to whom, and we may never get to that because we don't know, frankly, can we look at it from the other end of the telescope? I'm interested in not so much what this says about Trump himself, but what it says about maybe the relationship between the elected executive and the other branches of the state, including the security state and the military state. I think there is a real question about whether some dangerous precedents are being set here. If we're not talking about Trump, say it was Bernie Sanders in the White House. And he'd asked the head of the FBI, who was investigating something that looks to people on the left like a trumped up charge about connections with Iran or something. Can I trust your loyalty? There is a traditional view that in a democracy, you have to be quite worried about thinking that either generals or spooks get to set the running. And yet here we are, people are so frantic that Trump is the end of democracy, that they are throwing all their eggs in the basket of the generals or the spooks. Aaron, do you think leaving Trump aside for now, do you think there is a broader principle at stake here? I mean, is there a danger that in people's desperation to get rid of Trump, that they will end up empowering people that, on the whole, in a democracy, you ought to be worried about empowering?
1: I actually think the greater danger is that as long as Trump is in place, he is going to create an incentive for people in the security state, if you will, to go around the usual chain of command, because he's now basically demonstrated that he is too impulsive to be trusted. And I should add, the other
0: thing that's developed in the last 48 hours is that he seems to have shared fairly secret intelligence with the russians i mean that was the story 48 hours ago before it was trumped by the story over the last 24 hours about the comey memo
1: this is is my big concern is you've basically got uh, not really a civil military clash here but primarily a clash between trump and U.S. intelligence, and which has been going on for a long time, the FBI being one of the 16, yes, there are 16, 17. Um, 17 now, thank you very much, I keep forgetting, I can't remember who was added, but 17 bodies that responsible for intelligence gathering and analysis in the United States government. Again, I don't think the danger so much, at least from my perspective, is that people are going to somehow come to the conclusion that it would be better if the CIA were running the government. I think it's the danger is that you'll start to have intelligence officials because they don't think that Trump can maintain communications security. They're going to start looking for ways around the normal chain of command. And that will get you a kind of de facto situation where you have less civilian control, which is antithetical to the principles of democratic right. government. So, that, I,
0: I don't think I was suggesting that people are going to say enough with this democracy thing, let's get the spooks to run things, but more that the next time this happens, a precedent will have been set. And politics is so hyper partisan at the moment. So the Trump era ends, the other side get their turn. But the Trump era was ended by... People looking for ways round the chain of command, so then there will be an expectation we can do it again when the people that we don't like are in.
1: Although I think Trump is a special case, and what uh, Dothat, mm. <laughs> probably pronouncing it differently every single time I say it, is getting at is this is not just a question so much of maladministration, or questionable policy choices, or even basic incompetence. And this is what I kind of tell people, not so jokingly anymore, when they ask me, what do you think about Trump? I'm like, do ask a clinical psychologist about Trump. Because we're getting onto the grounds now where it's this, he simply lacks impulse control. And you've got, it's, it's not just kind of my amateur head shrinking going on here. You've got People with PhDs from highly respectable institutions, psychiatrists, signing open letters, right? Sending, you know, to newspapers saying, this guy's not fit to lead. And and you're starting to see it demonstrated here, right? So I don't know how much of a precedent this sets because we have somebody who is not quite all there. And what do you
0: think is the key demonstration of that? Is it, so the impulse control? The
1: impulse control especially.
0: But is it that he blurts out secrets when the Russians are in the room, or is it that when he's talking to Comey, I suppose we can believe this, he starts making requests which look, in hindsight, like he's interfering with a... And uh, the a legal I think investigation, what's what's the impulsive thing that makes you think he? It's can't.
1: both the blurting things out for the Russians, but it's also when he's telling Comey to back off of Flynn or can I have your loyalty, it's just an utter incapability, I think, to kind of reflect on the perceptions of others. This is a kind of narcissistic personality style where he can only think in terms of what's good for himself and desirable from the perspective of his immediate family members. Now, the other thing is there have been repeated stories that his... Handlers, and I'm going to call them handlers rather than aides in the White House, have to continuously shield him from information that will make him upset because they don't know exactly what he's going to do. Right? He he doesn't have the ability to regulate his emotional reactions like an adjusted adult human being would. I'm telling you, it's it's becoming less and less of a political issue and more and more an issue of clinical psychology. Just
2: to de-psychologize for a second, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think that the U.S. president has extensive powers of declassification, doesn't he? I mean, I think if we're in a situation where prior to the arrival of Donald Trump, the US government and state had gone to the extreme of being an overwhelmingly secret dominated political system with huge amounts of classified information reflecting the predominant powers of these intelligence services, all of these different institutions... Then you have somebody who comes in, who's not breaking any rules, but is exercising powers that he does have.
0: He's just more of a sharer.
2: Well, okay, let's put it that way. Um, But on top of that, has no confidence of these institutions, and so is fighting, if you like, a losing battle against all of these leaks that are coming out. Then without thinking too much about his personality we can say that this is what it means to govern when you have no trust between the executive and all of these non-elected institutions and i i agree with what you said david at the beginning which is there is a serious problem i think where the default setting is that you're placing your hopes for us democracy in unelected very secret institutions uh, where it should really be the other way around
0: and it should be said there are quite a lot of voices who are saying hold on if we are going to get rid of Trump, it's much more important that we do it through the midterms and beyond than that we do it before that. That There is a real risk here if we preempt the next electoral test that the precedent will have been set.
3: I agree, and I think that there's probably three different questions that are in danger of getting conflated together. There is a question of whether Trump is temperamentally, psychologically, in Aaron's terms, suited for the presidency. I think the answer to that is no, he's not, um, not least because of impulse control uh, issues. But this is a situation that has a clear precedent, at least one clear precedent, and that is Lyndon Johnson. If you look at the accounts of Johnson's decision-making in the, by 1966, 1967, then most of the people working close to him are absolutely terrified of his psychological condition. And this was a man who was commander-in-chief at a time when the United States was embroiled in the Vietnam War. I think you could make some similar arguments about Nixon, but I think Johnson was further out there in terms of his psychological state. The next question is, Is well, leaving Trump aside, what is the state of the relationship between democratic politics and the military? And I think if you go back to the interview, I think it was in Atlantic magazine, a long interview that Obama gave some time last year. He essentially said that the most successful moment of his presidency was the moment that many people think was one of the worst moments of his presidency when he backed away from the Syrian bombing over the alleged use by the Assad regime of chemical weapons. And his argument was... Basically, I stood up to the generals. This is the first time in a long time that an American president has said, we're not going any further, we're not doing what the generals want me to do. And I think if you put then the context of Trump's presidency, leaving aside the issues of temperament, sorry, what we can see is a a candidate who was elected on a set of foreign policy positions that included better relations with Russia, and a different policy in Syria. And what we have seen since is, is that Trump has had his decision-making options fundamentally narrowed, such he's moved away quite dramatically from both of those positions. He's actually, you might say, at best indistinguishable from the position that the Obama administration took on this. In some ways in Syria, he's actually moved closer to the dominant general's position, the one that Obama backed her away from. So we've already seen a situation in which the leaking from various factions of the security state have essentially made it impossible for an elected president to pursue the foreign policy agenda with which he came into office. Now, some people might say that's a good thing, but I think we've got to be worried about what's going on here in terms of the relationship between the power of the generals and the security state and the power of democratically elected politicians, regardless whether it's Trump or whether it's anybody else.
0: And just to go back to that historical analogy with Johnson, I mean, presumably one of the big differences here is that this is being played out in a much more public way it is a dysfunctional administration. It's leaking left, right and centre. But also there's a kind of farcical element to it the the sort of Sean Spicer aspect, there may have been terror inside the Johnson administration, but it was pretty well kept from public view, right? And th- And this has got that extra theatrical dimension to it close to farce, which is complicating it. There's something almost funny about it if it wasn't so It unfunny. is. I mean there's
3: there's all kinds of you know, evidence actually from quite early on about Johnson's behaviour, but it was not ending up being discussed on a daily basis and some of the revelations about the aides who ended up going to see psychiatrists essentially to try to say to them what the hell's going on with this guy came out in memoirs years later. And at the time I don't suppose anybody outside the Washington belt so to speak understood what the issue was with Johnson. And
0: there is also said to be a similar moment in the Reagan second term right where they were starting to get seriously worried and taking medical advice and then he seemed okay for a bit and they decided to but that was only discovered with hindsight.
1: This is certainly not unprecedented in that you have the health of a leader compromised. First time that Kennedy met with Khrushchev, he was on a ton of painkillers. Ken- Kennedy was. John F. Kennedy. Yeah. JFK. Khrushchev might have been as well, but uh, Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy was. Anthony Eden, also during the 1956 Suez crisis, had just gotten over a uh, kind of botched surgery and wasn't enough on. on the enough. amazing
0: about the Suez crisis, every single key player was either in hospital, just coming out of hospital under the knife. It's amazing. Right.
1: So leaders certainly have been compromised in the past, but Helen's correct that the unique aspect of this is that we're seeing it kind of play out in real time. We can't turn a blind eye to it. The thing about the legality of the intelligence release is that nobody's questioning whether or not it was legal. But there's a couple of things to remember here. One is just because something's legal doesn't make it a good idea. And I don't think anybody also is arguing that because this was legal, this is a good idea. But the other thing is, and again, I agree that it would be best to take this to the midterms, right? Though I'd be surprised if, if the Democrats win the 2018 midterms and take over the House, I'd be very surprised if impeachment proceedings weren't forthcoming after that. Patty Power would agree with me, I think, on that one as well. The thing is, we do know that this guy is unbalanced, and we can observe it now. So the question is, do we have to worry about, well, what kind of precedent does this set for the future? Or do we say, okay, well, this is somebody who's in charge of the nuclear codes, who's engaged in brinksmanship with Russia and Syria, with North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. Do we want a person like this to continue to serve in office? And the 25th Amendment is designed with a case like this in mind. So why have it if you're not going to use it?
0: In case people are wondering, I should say Paddy Power is a Irish bookmaker, not yeah. the senator for Massachusetts or the husband of Samantha Power. You made like that, that
1: joke, not me. So uh, um, like that's so for the record. Aaron,
0: I want to put a different way of framing this question to you as something that you've said a lot in the past, leaving aside his psychological state, you say the distinctive characteristic of Donald Trump as a politician is that he's highly transactional. No. I mean, not just that it's all about the deal, but it's all about... A kind of trade of favours. And and that seems to be the consistent pattern here. I mean, he shares intelligence that maybe he shouldn't share because he's trying to, as it were, exact some kind of transactional relationship with the Russian foreign minister. He's asking Comey for his loyalty. If you look at what Comey claims that he said, it's not an overt threat. It's a kind of slightly wheedling, what is our relationship? Can I trust you on this? Now, you might think that he's psychologically not fit, But there's another view, which is simply that A transactional approach to politics in the White House is very, very quickly going to run up against norms, conventions, laws, this thing called the Constitution. the Constitution is not designed to make politics purely transactional. And
1: that's the problem here. Transactionalism is not the only component of Trump's personality, right? The other thing that we're seeing here, and I think is the case with Russia and with Comey, is that Trump is an emotionally needy person, which is a major feature of narcissistic personality disorder, which, again, it's not just me saying this is a lot of psychiatry are saying he's probably got this as well right so the context in which the leak took place when he was divulging the code word which is higher than top secret intelligence to uh, the Russian ambassador was, I get the best intelligence. You know, look at my position. Look at look at the status that I've attained, right? Look at how powerful I am. I'm a legitimate president, right? And this is another thing that gets leaked by staffers, right? It's not just the so-called deep state that's leaking. It's people in the White House around him that are desperately concerned about his mental state, right? is The stuff about needing to shield him from information that he doesn't like has a lot to do with emotional insecurity, basic fear that he is not seen as a legitimate president. Go back to the whole obsession with his crowd size at the inauguration or his obsession with insisting, despite all (laughs) evidence to the contrary, just basically being flat out objectively wrong, that he had a landslide victory in the electoral college. Never mind that he lost the popular vote, right? And he's got to blame that on some imaginary 3 million illegal alien votes that never took place, right? I mean, all this stuff points to an emotional immaturity and shallowness.
3: I think there's several things here about the transactional point in the way in which he's dealing with the situation in which he's in. In many ways, there is a very clear parallel between this moment in the Trump-Comey relationship and what happened to Nixon over Watergate. Because if you look at the the smoking gun tape, as it's called, the taped conversation or the taped conversation that ultimately did for Nixon, it is when he's sitting in the White House with one of his aides, Bob Holderman, and he basically says, You go to the director of the CIA, Richard Helms, and you blackmail him with some stuff to get the FBI to stop investigating the burglary at the Democratic National Committee headquarters and you know there's a pretty clear parallel between what's gone on now essentially in the sense of you know Trump said to the director of the FBI back off investigation of one of my men.
0: Although I think the version that we've got it's not as avert it's as, not as a, it, I mean the Nixon thing is quite clearly. But it is blackmail. It sort of feels a bit more competent in the sense that there's a clear objective and there's it didn't work. Whereas Trump, it's almost like in the room, in the moment, he's feeling out these There's relationships. There is not a strategy.
3: <laughs> but what I do think, though, is if you carry on, then look at what happens in the in the Watergate saga from that moment on. Is Nixon carries on trying to play that transactional game with Richard Helms as the director of the CIA, and actually, the moment when Watergate speeds up and reaches its conclusion is the moment after which Richard Nixon sacks. Richard Helms is director of the CIA and within months of that essentially Nixon's position is untenable so he carries on trying to play a transactional game that he ends up losing so I think in that sense that this transactional game is part of the way in which political games have been played in Washington in the past but if you look to the precedent you'd say well the president ends up losing this one.
2: There is probably some merit in taking a step back here and sort of taking a few deep breaths.
0: Should we all do that? (laughs) Okay, carry on.
2: And uh, I think the danger of precedent is enormous. So there is a massive sort of army of individuals who were opposed to Trump at the election and then are still opposed to him now. And if there's... This idea that any means of getting him out is legitimate, whether that's to sort of emphasise his psychological instability at the expense of a broader picture of why these things might be happening, to relying on the security services. This idea that anything to get him out is good, I think... The only way to get him out is to defeat him through political means. I think that's the only way, without setting some sort of precedent whereby the democratic process is compromised at the expense of emphasising non-elected, non-democratic aspects of, of US politics. I would suggest for opponents of Trump, it's the moment to really sort of take a step back and have a think about what strategy to put in place to defeat him. And to be honest, maybe to try and prop up what is a pretty shaky administration, and to provide some sort of support in order to to enable this to continue until the political moment of sanction comes. Because otherwise, I think the precedent is going to be a, a really terrible one.
0: And this may be a bit parochial, but if there is a lesson from British politics, it's people thinking about Jeremy Corbyn. And there is always an issue about, is the imperative simply to escape from something which to many people looks like a nightmare? Or is it to allow this thing to fail? There must be a danger that an early exit for Trump from the presidency before the next electoral cycle over the long term creates all sorts of hazards for the democratic party going forward not just the sense of betrayal among his supporters but as you say the series of precedents that it allows there will be a scenario in the next five ten fifteen years when a democratic president is also under huge pressure from the american security state and you think republicans are going to hold off at that point
3: well, i think we've already seen this in a way in the sense of what happened after watergate because there essentially you had the use of the criminal law to bring a president. Down. I'm not suggesting that that shouldn't have happened but you know a special prosecutor was put in place to look at these crimes that were committed under the he- umbrella heading of the Watergate scandal and then what we saw was a succession of special prosecutors that were then directed against future presidents culminating in the special prosecutor that was put up against Bill Clinton which had resulted in the impeachment in the House and okay was acquitted in the Senate but I think we'd be hard pushed to deny that that sort of cycle of using special prosecutors, applying the law against presidents, did not have a very destructive effect on American politics from the 1970s to the 1990s.
0: This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. The other side of this is that it's all very well to talk about precedent and long-term consequences, but there is an immediate and present danger, which is there is someone in the White House (laughs) who, while we're talking in fairly broad terms, having taken a few deep breaths about how this might play out further down the line, risks catastrophe for the world before the midterms.
1: Absolutely. And a couple of things. First, the democratic process is already compromised. That happened when the election transpired and Donald Trump won, and then it came out that everybody around him from Carter Page to Paul Manafort to Michael Flynn and so on and so forth had connections to the Kremlin. And currently he's obstructing any effort to investigate that. Not through a really well-thought-out strategy, but he's doing it. Believe me, nobody wishes that we weren't in this situation more than I do, but we are, right? We can't ignore the evidence in front of my eyes. I haven't seen... A better explanation for the way Trump behaves then he is basically psychologically unfit in a way that isn't acute. This is the other difference between, say, a Trump and a John F. Kennedy or an Anthony Eden. Is those were acute situations where they were compromised by drugs that they were being prescribed. He's 70 years old. He's not going to change. This is a bug, right? This is an inherent flaw. This is not a momentary glitch, and it is a situation in which the worst has already happened. The worst get, the worst happened when he was elected.
0: So to put it the other way around, yeah. I mean, we touched on this a bit. Are we in your mind now in a situation where the traditional fear for a democracy, and Helen mentioned this in relation to Obama, is that the generals won't do what they're told by the civilian authorities? Yeah, it is absolutely at the heart of democratic politics. It's what makes modern democracies tick, that in the end, the generals do what they're told by elected politicians. Do you think we have now reached a situation where we have to hope that the generals do not do what they're told?
1: I have no idea. And that would be, in many ways, it's hard to say which is worse. That's um, why I'm asking the question, because yeah. like, we
0: are in a different situation if we are genuinely thinking that the health of democracy depends upon a series of people called general something, look something, mm-hmm. when told by Trump to do something, say no.
3: I think if we're talking about a situation in which... People want Trump removed from office. There is a clear procedure, as Aaron's already said, the Twenty-Fifth Amendment for doing this. Actually, the U.S. Constitution provides a get-out here. So if the With gen- quite a high threshold, quite a high threshold. I don't ther- think it's so difficult. It's, hard. it's a, the Vice President and half of the cabinet. Half the cabinet, and then,
1: then it goes to the Congress, and ther- then if and then it goes back to the ca- if the cabinet still says uh, no, he's not fit to serve, and then it's validated by the But if you have Congress, a constitutional
3: yeah. procedure uh, that allows for this, and then instead you allow the generals essentially to remove him from office then i think that's a no, that's another an, 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 another and level a, and i'm actually
0: not talking about the generals removing him from office because that would be a coup yeah. but i'm talking about trump saying do something and they say no
3: I think that's possible, but I think that's possible in any democracy. I mean, you would not want, I think, in a democratic state to say there are absolutely no circumstances in which a general should not accept an order from elected officials. I mean, that's not yeah. the democracy.
1: Right. Uh, no, a general can resign if he feels he's been given an illegal order, right? one that would amount to a war crime or atrocities, things of that nature. The other thing to remember, though, about this pushback that Trump is getting is he's not getting pushback necessarily because he's pursuing a policy is unpopular right he's getting pushed back because of his erratic behavior and the fact that he might be not an agent of a foreign state but basically being used by a foreign state given the people that he's surrounded himself with and is seems to be incapable of not doing things like blurting out allied top secret intelligence in front of them so it's it's not so much it's like oh well he's an economic nationalist or he ran on a platform of not getting bogged down in interventions in the middle east it's again he's just not effective as an executive.
3: But he has been pushed back on his foreign policy. He has and he been has pushed been, back on foreign it, it, policy. And but. he's been pushed back by the ways in which leaks have been used against him to reduce his freedom of manoeuvre in relations with Russia. Regardless of what you think of the rights and wrongs of that, I think it's pretty clear that causally that is what has happened.
2: And we also shouldn't forget that the, the single most identifiable policy, if you want to call it that, that Donald Trump had, was his anti-establishment rhetoric. That's what he carried into the White House. And in that sense, he has been taking on very directly and frontally a lot of institutions that are part of the establishment. So I think the pushback isn't coming because he's saying, I want you to do X, and X is something that these institutions don't want to do. It's the tone of the presidency, it's the actions, it's the way in which he operates. It's taking on, a lot of the, the time, this assumed authority and power that these institutions have uh, that the Washington-based political establishment. And these I'm sorry, have. but that's
1: not accurate at all. He's talked about anti-establishment politics, but look at who he's got in his cabinet. No, it's he's not. got generals. He's got people from Goldman Sachs. He's got McDonald's wife, Elaine Chao, as Department. Of, right, we've got to separate between the rhetoric and the actions. I mean, this is a smoke and mirror game, but it's not that hard to figure out what he's actually doing. Right. I mean, you just
3: have to... It is, but that's what I was... That's my point, though, is, is that what is actually... He came to office, his democratic platform, if you want to use that language, and his actions are not related to each other in any meaningful way any longer. So in that sense, I would say, you know, if you'd said, we were having this conversation three weeks ago, and the question was, what's happened to the Trump presidency? I would have said, well, the security states won. And that was kind of symbolic in the Syria bombing. What's happened since then is, is actually that he has found that the ground's moved under his feet again. And I, and I would suspect, going back to your, I think, correct point, Aaron, about his desire for transactional dealings, his perspective on this will probably be look, I did everything that you wanted. I bombed Syria, even. And now you're still screwing me over. If we're in an age where political outsiders are going to find themselves in
2: office, then we're also going to be in an age where individuals such as that find that the deck is stacked against them time and time again, and they're fighting these battles. And so I think we have to take some sort of position. And I think it's not that he's wanting to enact certain policies that people are opposed to, but I think his whole persona and his platform is one that's shaking up the universe in which US presidents operate. And that's creating a lot of reverberations and a lot of resistance. And so I think there is that going on. And we have to have some sort of opinion on it, I think, because it's not going to be the first time where we have this instance where when outsiders come into power, these kinds of things tend to happen, whether it's somebody you like or you dislike. Somebody like Macron in France, the Syriza government in Greece, these are outsiders who came in. And the reception of the wider state is a pretty mixed one. And in Trump's case, it's catastrophic. But
3: the the thing here that is happening is is we've got that issue combined with somebody who's temperamentally unsuited to the presidency. And that's why it's quite hard to untangle and say, OK, what's the biggest principle that's at stake here?
1: And I just can't accept that outside of his policy stances, Trump is a normal politician. That's not at all accurate from my point of view. And in terms of resistance, right, so far, actually, we haven't really seen that much given what he's done. It's certainly not from Congress. Republicans in Congress, with the exception of, again, lip service from people like Lindsey Graham and Ben Sasse and John McCain, will not abandon this guy, right? And the Republicans didn't really abandon Nixon until pretty late in the day. And certainly in the electorate, they're not abandoned. So he's actually not facing that much resistance from the the so-called establishment. And again, the resistance he is getting is not because of his policy preferences. It's because of erratic behavior. It's because of actions he's taking that jeopardize national security and actions that he's taking that violate any norms of constitutionality that really, in some ways, do amount to, and remember, this is not a legal term, high crimes and misdemeanors, right? Behaviour unbecoming of the top executive, the commander in chief, the president of the United States of America.
0: I suspect we're going to have to come back to this. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Take another few deep breaths. I think this story might run. I want to talk about one last thing because we do also want to keep remembering that there's a general election going on here and There are lots of things to talk about, and we're going to focus next week on the Labour Party. The Labour Manifesto was launched yesterday, so it'll be a couple of days ago when people hear this. The Tory Manifesto was due to be released early this week, but hasn't been. The Liberal Democrat Manifesto, I think, is coming out today. We're in an age of not just leaks, but information just sort of seamlessly moves through the new space without there being obvious breakpoints. It's not totally clear what the difference is between a manifesto launch and just people telling you what's in it anyway, though the the pre-leaked labor manifesto is a little bit different from the one we saw. But we'll talk about labor properly next week. I just want to talk more broadly and it relates to what we were talking about there. A couple of you mentioned he ran on a platform. Not totally clear what that platform was, but parties in the United States. Their conventions come up with platforms and presidents run on them. But I'd always assume that the manifesto in Britain had a particular place. And I'm looking at Chris and Aaron, he in a way you can give us in different ways an outside perspective on this. That the British Party manifesto was a kind of British institution and it ran with a certain rhythm of politics which is now over. So the, the traditional idea, and by traditional I mean it goes back maybe to the Attlee government or before which is they run two parties run on a manifesto one of them will win because the system is designed to ensure there's a single winner and then the voters won't read this manifesto they're not interested but civil servants will and then they'll go through it and sort of remind ministers you know you did say you were going to do x and past a certain point when it's no longer possible to abide by the manifesto you probably need another election and that's done now because the first thing that killed it was the coalition which changed the terms of the game and we probably not this time but coalitions are maybe a feature of our politics. And then the other thing that's changed and we've seen it in the last cycle is that between one election and the next there are these other electoral moments or votes, referendums and so on which mean that whatever a manifesto said it's now moot. And I'm assuming, I don't know, but that whatever manifesto commitments are made this time round between now and the next election something will happen, the Brexit negotiations or whatever which will allow politicians to say that things have changed, that we don't have that kind of election, give it a go, election politics anymore. Is this still a manifesto-based polity? That's a slightly pretentious question, but you know what I mean.
2: I suppose the manifesto tradition in British politics is because you are in a situation where the executive, when it's formed, can actually implement
0: it quite directly. Because it's a two-party system that produces one-party government. That's That's right. That's the point. Um,
2: But I think that doesn't exclude the sort of the broader manifesto tradition in other places. It's not called exactly the same thing, but it does exist. And I think of France, the French call it le programme. And it's a pretty important part of what the presidential candidate has to offer. And I think... Voters do read these things quite carefully often. And in France, you hang around waiting for the arrival of le programme. and Hang away. around on
0: street corners. Not quite they? on street corners,
2: <laughs> but you expect it to come through and then you can compare them. And there was quite a lot of discussion about, in this instance, Macron's programme, what exactly it was going to look like, who was putting it together. So there's still the tempo of electoral campaigns are still organised around some sort of unifying document of intent.
0: And in the French case, will the candidates who run under the Macron banner for the legislative elections in a few weeks' time be running on the Macron programme?
2: Yeah, absolutely, yes. In the case of if you go under the En Marche sort of label... Then en Marche is defined by what was in the Marche. presidential. That's program. right. And in France, I think because they moved the legislative elections so that they would be at the same time, just after the presidential elections, in the past it used to not be that way. It's exaggerated, actually, this kind of idea of a unifying program. Yeah, and actually, candidates. by making
0: it a month after, it does have that effect, which That's is right. Macron comes. There's not time for people to kind of adjust the program.
2: He sets the tone, and then it's kind of. But I think in the British case, I think it's. I mean, if you think of politics as becoming more more permeable, the imposition of these kind of international events that derail things is much more common, ideological traditions mean much less, then I think
3: the manifesto becomes a bit old-fashioned, to be honest. Except I think there's one way in which this isn't true, and that is is the convention about how the House of Lords behaves in relation to manifesto commitments. So it's part of the constitutional tradition since the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, or the beginning of the 20th century, that the House of Lords do not vote down things that are in government's manifestos. And I think given the difficulties that Theresa May is likely to have with the Lords over Brexit, it's not really clear there is a Conservative majority in the House of Lords, that it does matter what is in this Conservative manifesto because things that are not in the manifesto will be things that will be open for the Lords to have a confrontation with with the government about. Well,
0: Presumably we'll have to see, and we'll come back to this next week, it's not going to say much about what... Brexit means beyond meaning Brexit. No
3: I don't think it's going to say much about that at all but I think that it will matter in a context in which there will be a fight between the Lords and the government over Brexit then the opportunity to take shots from the Lords at Theresa May's government over other issues in relation to what is and is not in the manifesto I think maybe at least has some significance.
0: And does the British party manifesto look kind of quaint to you or is Not it at a all. recognizable feature of...
1: It's a recognizable feature. I mean, so a party platform in the United States probably doesn't hold the same weight necessarily. But if you look at, so Helen and I have talked about this data set that I've been using that she actually coded some of the party platforms in this data set. It's called the Party Manifesto Project or the Comparative Manifesto Project, depending on who you ask. And one of the things you'll see in the United States when they code, so they do a content analysis of the content of the Republican and Democratic Party platforms over time, and then they assign it a score where a negative score is more liberal or more left of center, a positive score is more right of center it maps very closely to the historical understanding of where different presidential candidates were. So you see, for example, when Reagan takes office, the Republican platform from that year jumps way to the right. Likewise, for Clinton as well. Clinton is normally seen as kind of pretty center right for a Democrat. And likewise, his his score is further right, certainly than a Jimmy Carter or uh, Lyndon Johnson. So there's some face validity to this. So it seems like in the United States, party platforms do reflect what president's do in office
0: and it's one of the differences here that the manifesto in the british case exists partly to help the civil service because the civil service is a permanent feature of british politics and it doesn't change with a new administration but in the united states the broadly speaking the civil service does change with the administration so what we have here is a neutral ostensibly neutral civil service who need a kind of checklist in order to be able to know what it is they're being asked to do in the american case Is it more that the civil service itself kind of reflects the general mood that a new presidency brings? And so it's not so much of a checklist?
1: It's not so much of a checklist. It's much more, I think, of a A kind of signal. A signal to the electorate, as well as it can be uh, basically a test of where the party stands on issues. So, for example, in this last election, there was a fair amount of back and forth between Sanders. Surrogates, I guess you could say, and Clinton surrogates who were on the Democratic National Convention platform committee on issues like Israel and issues like climate change and exactly how far to the left the party should go on those matters or how much uh, attention they should get in the platform. And through those processes, you kind of gauge where party insiders stand. So it gives you a better understanding of how much constraint or flexibility you have in, in that regard within your own tent. And the other thing about manifestos, they are still, I mean, the ones that we're seeing now,
0: they are still these kind of documents they're produced, I mean, they're mainly online now, but they get physically produced as well. And if you look at past ones, we've been looking at some past ones, the words are kind of boring, but the pictures are often hilarious, because it's also how parties present themselves. And I've been looking at the UKIP manifesto for last time, where various UKIP figures are posing in certain settings. So there's a great picture, we'll tweet it, of Paul Nuttall in his sort of oldie worldie library, reading some serious books, looking like a very serious person. And a big part of a manifesto is actually, insofar as people are going to register it at all, an opportunity to present a kind of image of the party. I haven't actually seen the... Fo- has anyone seen the photos that are in the Labour one? No. Not are not, they no. pictures of... What are they pictures of? Workers? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, th- 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 there is always a, a question here about, and we'll see with the Conservative one, how they how they want to look. I mean, that is a part of it, right?
2: I think the aesthetics is quite important. It does actually tell you something about the way the people putting the document together are thinking. The best manifesto that I've seen in recent years is the one by the the Spanish party Podemos. And their manifesto for the June elections of last year was very literally modelled on an IKEA catalogue. And you had images of all these... You could these...
0: assemble a policy platform out of well, bits of... Well, The
2: Guardian called it flat-pack flat policies. Okay, um, that,
0: that was the joke I was striving to that. Yeah. But
2: what was interesting is, so you think that this was just a joke, and it wasn't actually. The point about this aesthetic choice that Podemos made is what they were trying to say, what they were trying to communicate, is that the policies they adopt are common-sense policies that are so obvious and also there's no other way of doing it when you put an ikea you know cabinet together you can't do it your own way you
0: just there is just one way of doing, faintly doing it faintly sinister as, a, poli- as a, a political
1: when i see an ikea catalog image. my heart starts beating faster not out of joy but out of anxiety because i have terrible i have no manual dexterity so that manifesto would not work very well on me it would just give me a sense of dread although I, you did share i did look at it it was quite cheery
0: quite in the kind of the the kitchens look nice
2: and the, but there's too many books, I think. It's unrealistic. All these people who are sort of normal people have massive bookcases in their houses. But um, the, the point is that the aesthetics com- combined with actually the serious message that the party was trying to put forward.
3: I was just making a completely different point. I think if more people had actually read the Conservative Manifesto in 2015 and particularly looked at what it said about the referendum, then we might have had a better understanding of what was to come, particularly the line where it says David Cameron will not form a government that does not include him. A commitment to hold the referendum so there's been a lot of talk since um, the referendum on Brexit that oh it only happened because the Conservatives won a majority but actually that isn't true because if you look at the manifesto Cameron effectively saying no coalition deal with anybody i.e. the Liberal Democrats without a referendum.
0: Because that's the other thing that has possibly changed which is this is no longer just a checklist for civil servants it's also an opening position in a negotiation for the possible formation of a coalition government. It may have said that. Do we really think that that was non-negotiable? I think it would. Just because it was in a manifesto? I think it would have
3: been extraordinarily difficult for Cameron to retreat from that in relation to his own backbenchers once that commitment was in the manifesto.
0: Well, what's different this time is that we probably know that one of the manifestos will be the blueprint for the next government, and there almost certainly won't be a coalition. And we'll talk about that manifesto next week, assuming they get around to publishing it. If they haven't published it by next week, I think there's a problem with it. Maybe the pictures weren't right. We'll also talk about the current state of the Labour Party, which we haven't talked about straightforwardly yet, and I think we should. So do join us for that. We'll tweet some pictures of Paul Nuttall and his bookcase if we remember to do that. We will remember to do that. Do go to our website if you want to get past episodes, including some of the specials that we've done in the last few weeks, and do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
2: I didn't mean that you literally take deep breaths. No,
1: no, I need to take deep breaths because I mean, you I'm got cross. I like well, it. Well, I'm just generally angry these days you're, by the state of American politics. And so and when I start to talk freaked about
0: out by the fact that it could go really horribly wrong. Yeah, right? I mean, my I why. tend
1: to be a pessimistic person anyway, but yeah. my mind is kind of like we swallowed the hand grenade already. It's in there. Um, the question is, you know, is the pin out? Yeah, is the pin out? And, you know, what's, the, you know, how much of the patient can you preserve uh, getting it out? Don't, don't any this. of this.
0: <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.